Welcome to Montgomery Talks, our regular podcast on local issues. I'm Doug Tallman, senior reporter at Montgomery Community Media, and today I have a special guest, Dan Reed. You might know him from his blog at justupthepike.com or his Twitter feed, which is also Just Up the Pike. But he's much more than that, and I'm going to let him describe himself. Oh, gosh. I wear a lot of hats. Uh, my background is in architecture and urban planning. I work as an urban planner here in Montgomery County, and I also do a fair amount of freelance writing and advocacy on uh, housing and transportation and education issues in the county for almost 13 years now. Okay. And you are a native of Montgomery County, correct? More or less. I was born in D.C. Uh, we lived in Prince George's County until I was three. Uh, and Almost ever since I have lived in Montgomery County. Okay. Well, first off, thanks for being here. Thanks for and, having me. Um, the reason why I, I wanted Dan on this podcast was a Twitter thread that he published on April 5th. You can find it. And I'm going to read some of it, if you don't mind. He starts it off with, in all capital letters, Montgomery County is a progressive, diverse community. White families are being punished. They won't be able to keep up and they won't study. It's not our fault those children don't have opportunities. You can put that burden on us. These are quotes you're pulling from an article that appeared on Bethesda Beat, correct? That's right. Uh, they were said at some community forum the school system had recently about the study to look at redrawing school boundaries. Right. That's what was quoted from Bethesda Beat. Here's what Dan writes himself. I cannot tell you how triggered I am by reading this. Twelve years of internalizing toxic nonsense from white parents and teachers in MCPS because we were, in all caps, better than everyone else. So clearly that this is how it was supposed to be. I got admitted to an MCPS magnet school in fourth grade, 1996, and shipped off from Silver Spring to Rockville to big houses and rich kids who had things I'd never heard of, like, quote, summer camp and, quote, tutors. And I wanted to impress them so bad. I begged for new clothes and a new backpack my parents could barely afford. I changed the way I talked. And when people asked me where I lived, I learned to lie. Because when I said I lived in Silver Spring, my teachers asked if that was in D.C. In 1998, my parents got a used car. Our old one had been repossessed. They pulled up to school, big sticker on the windshield. The other kids laughed. 95, they said. I was horrified jumped in, begged them to speed away. I talked too much because I was super curious and my fourth grade teacher, Mrs. Erdrich, put tape on my mouth. She kept it on the rest of the day. We went to music class and I remember her telling that teacher, keep the tape on his mouth. I just assumed this was something you did. So on the way home, I told my mom, oh, Mrs. Erdrich put tape on my mouth. Scree! She slammed on the brakes turned around, went back to that school, and tore that woman a new one. I was at a party last week and told the story, and someone asked, I wonder what happened to her. And I Googled it right then and there. She became a principal at a rich elite elementary school in Bethesda, a reward if you hear MCPS tell it. She was principal at that school, Burning Tree Elementary School, when a teacher restrained a student with Down syndrome for 45 minutes. And I'm sitting at my desk 23 years later after she did it, and I am just. And he includes a link to uh, the Parents Coalition. These rich parents who want to blame black and brown kids for not working hard enough have no idea. You know what? Maybe you should take on that burden of making sure they get even a little bit of what your kid gets. And it's not just schools, it's housing, 
it's transportation, it's social services. I was brought up to believe Montgomery County did it better than every other place, and I hope we'll actually deliver one day. Those are powerful words. What kind of reaction did you get? It was surprisingly positive. Nearly 200 retweets for the original tweet and a ton of affirming comments from people who had had similar experiences or people who were simply following along the story and, and felt gratified, maybe the way I did, that day when my mother you know, turned the car around and went back to the school. It was, it was encouraging. Uh, one of the things that's really made me hopeful about this whole study about drawing school boundaries is it's, I think it's opened up a lot of honesty about the situation. There are a lot of parents who have been surprisingly open about their biases against other people's children in the school system. And I think it's, while it's painful to hear, it is important to hear it. It's important to know that, you know, even though we had civil rights in the 60s and we were supposed to have uh, banished all of this prejudice and and bigotry in our society, it still, it still lives on. We still live in an unequal society and an unequal community. And the legacy of you know, the, those policies many decades ago linger today, and they affect decisions that people make every day, sometimes from a, a place of prejudice, sometimes from a place of, I just want the best for my kids, and if this is how I'm going to do it, this is how I'm going to do it. And yet a lot of parents will say, the problem with that study is it might break up neighborhoods. And I'm not 100% sure how to respond to that. I mean, how do, how do you respond to that? It's a study. This study is going to look at how or if Montgomery County Public Schools should redraw school boundaries. And my understanding is it will explore the potential impacts of that, how it could improve conditions in the school system, how it might inconvenience other people in the school system. But as far as I'm aware, this is not going to automatically redistrict everybody. That is another effort that happens after the study. But I'm eager to see what it says. You know, it's as if the, the god of irony is looking down on us because we're finding out two impressive headlines today. One is that Walt Whitman is one of the best schools in the county, probably the best school in the county and one of the best in the country. And two, Walt Whitman is also the site of um, kids who posted themselves in blackface. My first reaction to that is, if they are the number one school, that, that seems incongruous. <laughs> I agree. These rankings often take uh, test scores into consideration, and that's about it. And it's a risky way to look at a school. You know, study after study shows that one of the biggest indicators of a student's performance is who their parents are and what benefits are the parents able to pass on to their children you know, their socioeconomic status and the things that that can afford. So when you look at these school rankings, what they're usually telling you is how rich the parents are in that school catchment. And when you have a school system where students are, you know, basically de facto segregated, where you have schools where they are majority white or majority white and Asian, or there are virtually no black or brown or low-income students, you know, those are the kind of environments where these kinds of ignorant, prejudiced behavior can flourish. You know, Whitman is not even the first school this year to have an incident like this. This happened at Churchill High School earlier this year where students were handing out quote-unquote N-word passes, giving each other permission to use that word. You couldn't do that in a school that actually reflected the diversity of this county because, number one, 
you would have other students around who actually could tell you like how painful and inappropriate that behavior was. But also because I think you'd have students who are actually properly exposed to, to different people and, and maybe a little more empathetic themselves. Um, empathy. How would the school system instill empathy into its student body? Is this something that it's, it, this is something the, the family has to take care of and, and only, or are there things that the school system can do? I'm not sure if it's something you can necessarily teach. It's not like a switch you can turn on. I think one of the best ways that you can develop empathy towards other people is simply to be exposed to other people who are different from you and to understand that we generally want most of the same things in life, to be treated with kindness and respect, to have the chance to, to follow your own path in life and to, to build a good life for yourself. I, I'm not going to say that kids in more diverse schools in the county are automatically more empathetic, but I will say they're getting something that students in the, the sort of top tier of schools in Montgomery County might be missing out on. So looking back at your, your school life, where do you think the kids who went with you learned empathy and where did you learn empathy? That's a good question. I don't know. <laughs> I think I, uh, wow. Hmm. I, I mean, as a minority in the school system, you know, you just said that, that being exposed to other people helped create empathy. As a minority, one of the byproducts of you being that student in that classroom is you were, if not teaching it, exuding empathy or at least figuring out that, you know, people would recognize and say, hey, Dan's in my class. I'm a white guy, but Dan's smart. Dan's, he's, he's asked a lot of good questions and he's probably the smartest guy in the school. I think where I'm struggling is I, I'm trying to think of like one specific moment or incident that I could point to. And OK, I can give you one. I went to Blake High School, which was a fairly diverse high school at the time. Uh, but it was also, even in the couple of years after it had opened, it opened in 1998 and I started there in 2001, had developed a reputation as a pretty tolerant school towards queer students. And my, it's my junior or senior year, there was a student who posted on his Zenga, which is like a kind of personal blog that was really popular in the 2000s. He posted on there something about how he didn't like all the gay kids in the school and he was kind of sick of it, and they should just all leave or whatever. And I was really shocked by the response to that. His classmates were so upset with his comments and so critical of him, he didn't show up for two weeks after that. I didn't know who this kid was, but I knew after this had happened. Like, the word got out very fast, and he was pretty apologetic. I remember being in 10th grade, this is before I came out. I came out as a freshman in college. And there were still only a handful of gay kids in the school. It wasn't a time when it was accepted or even in a tolerant school like mine, like people weren't comfortable talking about it. And I was walking out of uh, my AP government class and there was a stack of papers on the table and on the top was one from a kid that everyone knew was, was out. He was, he was pretty flamboyant. And I said something stupid to my friend like, boy, that's the gayest S I've ever seen. And my teacher, Mrs. Taylor, pulled me aside and said, you know, you shouldn't talk about people like that. That's really inappropriate. And it has nothing to do with, with who they are, you know, making fun of their handwriting. And I felt at first really defensive, like, how dare you talk to me like that? Like, I was just making a joke. But I really, I, it caused me to sort of stop and, and think about the 
power that my words held. And looking back, I can tell it was a reflection of my own insecurities. I didn't want to be caught making the gayest S's in my handwriting. There's lots of little moments like that, that, like I said, it, it's not the sort of uh, intentional thing that happens, right? It's somebody feeling comfortable to step up and say, hey, don't do that or think about it another way. And it's a lot easier to do that when students are actually in an environment where they're around other students who are having different experiences than them. Mm. And, and not to say it was perfect. I heard my share of dumb, ignorant, racist stuff at Blake. It was a, it was a very large catchment and it pulled in you know, wealthy kids from Alney and, and poor kids from other neighborhoods. And it's not like everybody held hands and got along. But it's, it's a lot easier, I think, to, to provide a teaching moment mm-hmm. when those kids are in the same school than when they're on the other side of the county. And it becomes either a, a boogeyman like, ooh, man, uh, my, my friend's mom apologizing to me when I told her that my brother was getting into Paint Branch because they lived in the Whitman catchment, right? Things like that. Or you know, just a misunderstanding where families are coming from. You know, it's the, the comments that you quoted at the beginning of this segment are people who do not understand how other people live in this county because they aren't exposed to them. So at Blake, have you been to reunions? I was. I went to my fifth year reunion, and I go there at least once a year. I go there to speak at career day. I was there a couple of months ago. Do you see a lot of your the classmates you had back in back in the day? A few. There seem to be fewer and fewer every year when I go back. <laughs> and um, how do you look back on? I mean, when you see them, what do you think? Do you think, hey, we made it through, or you were a total jerk, and I, um, and, and <laughs> you know, I'm so glad you're washing cars right now, and I'm a college graduate. I think a little of column A and a little column B, but that's that's natural for anybody. The time gives you perspective. I am consistently impressed when I look back at how well a lot of my classmates are doing. I mean, I, I know kids who've moved all over the country and are doing really amazing things. Uh, I was in journalism in, in high school, so I know folks who are reporters at big-name publications all over the country. And a lot of them were, are students of color. And... It's funny to think about because in high school, it's just like, oh, yeah, such and such works for Twitter now or Sports Illustrated. That Of course they do. They were really talented and smart. Uh, to hear folks in other parts of the county, the way they, they talk is like, oh, if you send your kids to Blake or Paint Branch, they're going to end up being a garbage man. Like, obviously, the the author and I, uh, Chimamanda Adichie, talks about the single story in, in her TED Talk where, you know, she grew up in Africa but in a, a very middle class household. And when she came to the U.S., she realized that everybody talked about her like she had grown up on the savannah or something chasing lions. But she had a childhood that was probably not that different than a lot of American children might have had. And I find that we fall into that trap sometimes in Montgomery County. We forget that this county's affluence goes goes pretty far. You know, the, the neighborhoods around Blake and Paint Branch are, are filled with large, expensive homes that wouldn't look out of place in Bethesda or Potomac. And families who are making decent incomes, they happen to be black or brown, and they happen to have neighbors in those communities who are a little less affluent because of how the county has been zoned and developed over the past hundred years. But there's a there's a lot of money <laughs> in those communities too. There's a lot of comfort. These are not exclusively people who are scraping by. And I, I find this mentality goes all the way up to the top. You know, the county executive at a debate last year referred to White Oak as where the poor people live. And I get that. 
There is a number of apartment complexes in White Oak. There is a fair amount of poverty and disinvestment in that community. There are also big, beautiful homes on lush tree-lined streets and people who make a lot of money. And when my parents, who are probably somewhere in the middle, heard that, they were pretty, they were pretty hurt to hear their community described that way by somebody who wanted to lead that community. But it is, I think, reflective of so many misperceptions that people have about different communities in this county. This probably isn't the right time to break, but I want to take a break anyway, because it's about that time. You're listening to Montgomery Talks. I'm Doug Tallman, senior reporter at Montgomery Community Media, and I'm speaking with Dan Reed, and we'll be right back. MCM, your community media center, is making Montgomery County a great place to live through programs like 21 This Week. Montgomery County's hardest-hitting political talk show keeps you up to date with the local political scene. Montgomery Community Media, our middle name is Community. We're back at Montgomery Talks. This is Doug Tolman, senior reporter at Montgomery Community Media, speaking with Dan Reed. One follow-up question to uh, our discussion in the last segment was, has uh, Mrs. Erdrich reached out to you since uh, the, the tweet six weeks ago? No. I understand that she left her post as principal of Burning Tree in, I think, 2012, and perhaps she's retired. I, I don't know. I'm not sure what I would say to her. Suppose she apologized. I guess it would be nice to hear, but to be honest, like when I when I looked her up and I found that story about what had happened where she was principal, all I could think was how many other kids has this happened to? And not just the physical behavior, but the entire mentality. You know, I'm I'm gonna treat you differently because of what you look like or where you came from or what have you. It was a really that was a really um radicalizing experience for me going to this magnet school. It's weird to think about, you know, I was eight, but it was sort of empathy in a different direction. I was exposed to kids from backgrounds who were much more privileged than I was. And I didn't know that that was there, even in in Montgomery County. And there was a significant amount of culture shock for me being exposed to that. And I think one thing it taught me is that, you know, everybody has problems, no matter where you come from or what you look like or how much money your parents have. Everybody has problems. Everybody has hopes and dreams. Everybody wants to live a good and fulfilling and happy life. I didn't always get that empathy back at that school and from that teacher. And like I said, if she were to apologize, that'd be great. But I think she has a, she might have some more kids to make apologies to. Okay. The county is undergoing its racial equity and social justice program where it's asking people to describe what racial equity looks like to them. And, and I think they've just started it. What are your thoughts on that, I mean, in light of all this? I think it is mostly good and, and reflects what I hope to be a sort of broader consciousness in this community and, and in this nation about you know, how all of our lived experiences impact our lives and our communities, where we, where we come from and, and, the, and the unconscious biases that people hold sometimes. I... I'm nervous to see how it actually works in practice. It's one thing to say that you support racial equity. It's another thing to actually undertake the kind of policies that would give people from historically disadvantaged communities 
a real chance to succeed here, you know? I always like to say that Montgomery County is an engine for social and economic opportunity, right? People come here from all over the country and all over the world to, to build a better life for themselves. And my, in my own family, uh, my mother's family emigrated here from the Caribbean in the late 60s, early 70s. And before my mother and her, her 12 siblings moved into the district, you know, her, her two oldest sisters moved into an apartment on Rockville Pike in 1969. And I... I drive by there sometimes, it's by the Best Buy, and I think, what was that like for these two brown women in a, in a new country for the first time in 1969, when Rockville was a very different place than it is now? What was that experience like for them? Did they feel welcome here? Did they feel like they had access to all of the things that you need to make a good life? Shopping, uh, medical care, transportation, just the dignity, you know, of being treated with the respect that everybody deserves. And that's, that's kind of the conversation I want to have. You know, if we're serious about racial equity, we have to take a serious look at our school system and how the boundaries are drawn and how our schools are set up demographically and whether students really have access to the best that MCPS has to offer. We have to take a serious look at transportation and ask, you know, why, for instance, the county executive is making cuts, proposing cuts to ride-on service on the county's most frequent and heavily used bus routes in the budget this year. That is something he's tried to do twice now. If we're serious about racial equity, we have to look at housing and and really tackle the issue of rising housing costs in the county and all of these neighborhoods who have successfully been able to say, we are not going to accept new homes and new residents. And all that really does is drive prices up, make our communities less affordable, make our communities more segregated, push people out to Frederick County and Howard County and beyond. None of those things are equitable. And I'm hopeful that this conversation about racial equity actually leads to some more self-awareness. So now granted, since you bring it up, well, we'll, let's, let's explore that a little bit. You talk about the moratoriums that are being considered for building because of school overcrowding. Obviously, the county has a finite amount of funds and there's only some of these schools can only get so much bigger. Mm-hmm. BCC, I think, they just finished an, uh, an addition. I don't think they're going to ever get bigger. <laughs> And some of these elementary schools, do you want an elementary school with 1,200 kids? Do you want a middle school with 2,000 kids? I mean, those are, these are philosophical questions, of course. But what's the answer? I think the answer ultimately comes down to school funding. We, we do need money to invest in our schools. We have a number of aging facilities. We need, have a number of facilities that don't have the capacity uh, they need for the students who are coming there. We also have a number of schools that are under capacity and could take in more students. Springbrook High School is 400 students under capacity almost, and will be for the next several years, and the school system is actually taking away staff because there aren't enough students. And there's an opportunity to put more kids in that school, you know, while we're building all these additions at other schools. There's an opportunity to use the space we have better. There's an opportunity to use all of these closed school facilities that the county continues to own. But those things all take money. And I would be happy to stand up and and figure out a solution for getting that funding and for better using the resources that we have. What we can't do is is tie this issue of school capacity, which is very real, to the issue of development. You know, we can't say we care about overcrowded classrooms and say we don't care about overcrowded housing because that's what's happening. You know, my parents live in White Oak in a very nice neighborhood, and there are 15 people living in the house next door to them because it's a family that bought their house at the top of the market, you know, 10, 11, 12 years ago, and could not make the mortgage. And so they've invited family members and boarders and whomever to live with them. Like, that's 
a real issue and is representative of the affordable housing issue we have in this county. And the moratorium will only make it worse by depriving the county of much needed new homes, by depriving the county of moderately priced dwelling units, which are the subsidized affordable homes the county requires in every new development. And it's not like people are just going to not move here because of the moratorium. You know, nobody, you didn't look at the, the planning department policy regulations before you chose to make your home here, right? So all it's going to do is force people into worse and worse housing conditions. And we can make room for more people in this county in homes, and we can also do it in our schools. But those two things are not as connected as people think they are. And just for the record, I live in Frederick, so just in case anybody's confused <laughs> by that. You came close to being one of those people to, well, I, close may be a relative term, but um, you almost were mm-hmm. one of the people who would have been deciding some of this when you applied for the planning board a year or two, two ago. years ago. Two years ago. There's another opening, and I believe you announced, ain't going to do it again. That's right. right. <laughs> um, what was it about that procedure that you don't want to try a second time? I, it was a really good experience. I got to meet people from all over the county and and learn what different people were talking about and and learned a lot about how the public process worked. And even though I didn't get appointed, it was still a really big learning experience. And I I think well, I think there are two things. One is maybe there are other voices who should be on the planning board and I and I'm willing to help lift up and support those people who want to apply this year. And I think part of it is that experience really caused me to stop and think about, you know, how, how can I best serve this community and how can I best serve myself? And I was, I'm pretty happy with how things turned out, even though I didn't get to be on the planning board. I've been really happy with my own personal life and, and what I've been able to do over the past two years. Okay. You're happy with the way your, your life turned out, but as you look at what the planning board has decided over the last two years, have you ever thought, gee, they should have gone in a different direction. Not necessarily. I've been pretty satisfied with a lot of the plans that have come out of the planning board. I think they did an excellent job with the Bethesda downtown plan, both in terms of crafting a new vision for Bethesda and also finding new ways to provide for affordable housing and to address open space issues. And you can see it now in the in the new buildings that are going up there. Like we're gonna we're gonna create a pretty cool place. And I was happy with how the planning board dealt with that. I was quite happy to see the Veers Mill Road plan just passed by the current planning board. I know there was a lot of very real concerns raised about it, uh, some of the planning board members, about how inclusive it was and how well the county had engaged some of the residents and what is one of our most diverse communities. But overall, I think they did a good job. I personally think Veers Mill Road is a really interesting opportunity because you know, it's sort of um, if D.C.'s like main house type are these row houses, you know, the sort of quintessential house of Montgomery County to me are these little brick 1950s ramblers and colonials and stuff that just go all the way up Georgia and Beers Mill. They were the way that we welcomed people into this county in the 1950s and 60s by providing affordable, nice places to live that working people could afford. And, and they were very segregated at the time, of course. And today, those neighborhoods continue to be the sort of port of entry for so many people trying to get their first foothold in the county and to build a life here. So, you know, what we can do to invest in and enrich those neighborhoods is really important. And the Beers Mill Road Plan has a lot of cool things that will promote that. A tremendous focus on pedestrian and bicycle infrastructure because there have been a number of really unfortunate bike collisions there on a road that is generally designed for very fast car traffic. 
There's an emphasis on bus rapid transit and, you know, hoping to extend some of the accessibility that people have around the metro stations to these communities in between the metro stations. And there's a focus on investing in some of these older shopping centers and older neighborhoods that, you know, after 50, 60, 70 years need a, need a second chance, need a new shot of energy. And I'm hopeful to see what happens there. Well, I just want to back up a second. You said your support of the Bethesda downtown plan, which seemed to arrive with a great deal of consternation from folks who live in the various neighborhoods of Bethesda, who don't want to live in canyons, the whole bit. That seems to be an area where a certain segment of this county, particularly, say, down county, mm-hmm. is least satisfied with the county council, is in how development has progressed, particularly in Bethesda. And yet Bethesda is going to be the engine that drives the county in terms of jobs, in terms of investment, in terms of a a thousand other reasons. What's the best way for people to express their disagreement in a way that, that doesn't harm the equity? Your tweets essentially are a great way for somebody to express their dissatisfaction in probably a very harmful way. What's the least harmful way of disagreeing with the county? I'm not going to tell people how to talk or how to express their feelings because they they have them and they're valid. You paid a lot of money to live in this very nice neighborhood and you moved there because you like it and you want to keep it that way. And that's a totally natural and human impulse. I would encourage them to think about everybody else. Think about the people who cannot afford a one and a half million dollar teardown house in Bethesda. The people who are commuting into Bethesda every day, the people who uh, live in Bethesda now and are and can't afford to stay anymore because rents are rising and home prices are rising, the the people who could be a part of your community and could be there to enrich your community but simply aren't because there is no room for them to do so. It's totally human to accept and appreciate the way things are, but everything we love in Montgomery County is the result of some change that was inconvenient or unpleasant to somebody. I'm 31 years old, and much of the county that I grew up in is gone. Much of the DC I I remember from growing up is gone, and definitely makes me sad sometimes, definitely gives me pause. At the same time, there are so many things I have to be thankful for. You know, friends I've gotten to make because they were able to move here and find a sense of community and a place in this county People who had the chance to start awesome businesses and shops and restaurants that I, you know, I've come to cherish and enjoy, new homes and new new buildings that are beautiful and nice and add to the community and provide, you know, taxes that pay for all of the public and social services that we enjoy and sometimes take for granted. Not all change is good, but there is a chance that we could make things better, and that's sort of how I've always chosen to li- live my life. Okay, you say that everybody's opinion is valid, but yet. In your tweets, you say that some of the comments that people made, some of the criticism that they made of the, of the boundary study triggered you. So I, I guess I'm trying to thread that needle <laughs> and say, okay, how can somebody express themselves in a way that isn't triggering to somebody who's on the other side of the fence? If you harbor these kinds of toxic views about other people, like what folks have been sharing around the boundary study... I mean, I have two choices, right? I can either tell you to not say those things or just be be quiet or or subtle about them, which people do already, or to say those things and put it out there, right? I, to go back to planning board, I got in trouble because I made a joke about the kind of 
racist or prejudiced views that people in a certain part of the county might hold. The boundary study and the conversation around it has revealed that people, some people, some people do in fact feel that way. And it's out in the open now. And it's painful for me to hear. But it's also painful for people to live in a community where they don't have access to all the opportunities that they could otherwise have. I'm more concerned about that than that people said something ignorant. Okay. It's a good place to end it, I think. Thank you very much for being here. Of course. Thanks for having me. This has been Montgomery Talks. I'm Doug Tallman, senior reporter with Montgomery Community Media. Our engineer today was Ben Romero, and our executive producer is Gaynell Evans. See you next time on Montgomery Talks. Montgomery Talks.